Yes. This is our first episode of fall of 2022. So I would like to uh, welcome, welcome you to the fall. The market did as well. Would you please fill in the blanks of the fall? Okay. Well, uh, obviously, we're, pride is gone then because pride goeth before the fall. Yeah, anyway, it, it left, but did it come back? It doesn't really say in the quote. Well, it's probably hubris we have now. At any rate. Ah, ah. Once more under the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure, where two bald men are known to say their names in unison. Yes. Uh, We also talk about economics sometimes. Yes, we do. So we need to be dis- we need to be more dismal. We we must just cry a lot and speak yes. in a monotone. Everything about- is falling apart. There is no hope. Woe is us. I'm going to describe a chart with the X and Y axes. And if you go to X one and Y three, you will see that the chart there is that dismal enough. Nope. You are you are creating a traffic hazard on the highway to yes. anyone who's listening. Yes, uh, this is this is the job of economists everywhere. Uh, we right. are not only going to talk to you about the economy in the big picture. Hopefully, we'll get to some personal finance stuff as well. We are not just a radio program, and this is a disclosure because it's important. Uh, the two people talking to you, these two bald bearded creatures of human descent are, uh, the principals at a firm that is named the same thing as the radio program, the personal wealth coach. What a coincidence. Yes. Uh, and that firm is registered with the sec as an investment advisor, which is fiduciary advice, uh, customized to a client, uh, it's not possible to do that on the radio. Uh, we, on the radio, have to give you education rather than direct custom advice because it's really hard to one-size-fit-all customly. I guess that'd be a really easy custom job. Uh, well, there's, there's a lot of people who try it, but they're generally not registered to give advice, which is why they can give it so freely. Yes, uh, it's a fascinating area. We have to be careful on what we say because we need to actually know who it is we're talking to. And so what we do on here is education, number one. Number two, we just said we were registered with a government authority as if that gave us some kind of credibility or something. It doesn't. They're just the people that get us in trouble if we do something wrong. So they in no way, uh, they haven't disavowed us, but they certainly don't avow us is that even a word they they don't avow us but they haven't have to there must be avowing if there's disavowing right but you know if you say i really dislike that but you could just say i don't really like that but it means something different yeah and and there's disavow there's i don't know we could go into the fine points but i don't think they do that so they they don't give us any uh thumbs up or approval gold star or anything else they are just the folks that were registered through our firm with through our firm how's that put a couple of prepositions together sounds good to me with through um 
the uh, information. Well, well, I was about to give your favorite you can, disclosure. You can, certainly welcome to it. I, yeah, I've but been then trying. You'll go a whole week without saying it. I don't know if you can make it that long. Actually, it's buried in the disclosure in the, in the newsletter, so I get to say it quietly. Oh, anyway, okay. all right. The That's information. Good. The information that we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources deem, we deem to be reliable. However, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of anything we say or, or don't say. Or don't say. Right. Right. Yes. Uh, so, and the last but certainly not least is we are not paid to do this program, nor do we pay to do the program. This is a volunteer activity that we've been doing for more than 20 years. Old Baldy here has been doing it several years longer than me, but as a percentage of the overall, that number keeps getting smaller. Uh, so a couple mm. of decades that we've been doing this for free. I think the philosophy is if we keep doing this long enough, I'm enough older than you are that I will eventually die. And then you will do it alone. And that way you'll catch up with me. That's morbid. We're supposed to be yes. dismal, not morbid. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's okay. a different area. That's like an insurance program. Would we talk about that? So mm. uh, the last part is just because we don't pay for the program and so on. We do advertise on the radio station, KTEM. But the advertisement is for the radio program. And the studio also advertises for the radio program. We advertise at market rates and we're not buying a lot of it. So there. Hmm. Yes. And now on uh, the, the following talks. We've got some questions hanging out there, though. Uh, Inquisitor John, our most faithful Inquisitor, is somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere, I believe, or maybe on the other side of the planet, because typically he sends in a digi digital copy of the paper version of the Wall Street Journal, and this time it's upside down for us. So he may be on another hemisphere or simply on Percy. the other side of the planet. Or he could have been standing on his head at that particular could moment. Could be, I mean, could you know. be. Um, but his question has to do with the dollar. Uh, the subject is King Dollar, and it is definitely uh, big news. There's not really any currencies that are holding up against the dollar right now. The dollar is having a meteoric rise, which seems backwards because meteors fall, but that is what people say, meteor, you should say rocket rise. There we go. You uh, would be a meteoric fall, but for some reasons, people say meteoric rise. The yen, the euro, the pound, the renminbi, you basically, you go through the list of major currencies on the planet and they're falling at double digit percentages against the dollar. Why? Um, this isn't his question. This is me giving a background. Well, number one, we don't have a major war going on on our continent. Number two, we don't have major pandemic lockdowns shutting down anywhere from a fifth to a quarter of our economy and moving that around our economy for a year. That's China. Um, so you put that together and we look really good. The fact that we're, our economy does appear to at least have growth in certain parts of it is another thing, our interest rates are going up and they're going up faster than other places on the planet. 
the German bank's interest rates uh, just left the negative territory. So if you have a choice between putting your money somewhere where the currency is rising and interest rates are higher or leaving it where it is, where the interest rates are nearly nothing and the currency is falling, you can see there's a there's a trend happening here. And the more money that's pushed into the dollar, the stronger the dollar gets, which so it's kind of self-enforcing. Okay, so he has a question having to do with this quickly rising dollar. I, I think we, I'm just going to continue to say meteoric, but now that everybody knows that I think it's humorous, um, you, you'll be able to smirk a little bit as the next person says meteoric rise to you because... You could say mercurial. Mercurial, but that just means profit-based, and some people are losing money. No, 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 mercurial means very volatile, like mercury going up and down. Mercenary, mercurial, it's profit-motive as well. No, so I mean, it's from mercurial. the god. So you're saying uh, that this is also uh, a nominum? So what we're now talking about, m my friends that are listening, is a, is a word type called a nominum. It's a word that is its own opposite. For instance, when you sanction an activity, that could mean that you give it your full sanction or, no, I don't like this, so I'm sanctioning it. It's a word that means its own opposite. Another one it would be fast. So if you're on a ship and they tell you to make something fast, what they really mean is to make it really slow so it doesn't move at all. Or if you fasten your seatbelt, you are actually slowing your seatbelt. You're locking it in place. So those are nominyms. And meteoric rise, I believe, is a new analogous nominym. Ha <laughs> ha. Man, am I a nerd. Okay. So his question had nothing to do with nominyms. This is all me uh, rambling on at length for no apparent reason. His question is about the Plaza Accord which is a, a meeting that took place and an agreement that took place in 1985. Uh, the idea was uh, that in 1985, the U.S., France, West Germany, and the U.K., as well as Japan, launched a joint effort known as the Plaza Accord to drive down the dollar's value amid concerns it was weighing on the global economy. So this is after Paul Volcker, the then uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, was raising interest rates drastically in the early 80s to get ahead of the inflation that was the nightmare of the late 70s and really early 80s. Um, so he racked up interest rates at a very quick rate, which caused people's money to flow toward the United States where it could get better interest rates. That causes the dollar to grow in strength, which allows us to buy things in foreign markets cheaper. So if the exchange rate is better and you want to go to Europe, right now the euro is exchanging for 97 cents. Wasn't that long ago that it was $1.30. So when you go to Europe, you can buy a lot more stuff with a dollar, which causes our inflation rate to drop. Our imports become less expensive. So that causes prices to come down. So this is a good thing. Strong dollars are a good thing for a country that's trying to bring down inflation and not that worried about exports. We want to export stuff too. So this is the other flip side of the coin or the dollar is that export prices, they're going to buy less for the same amount of their money versus our money when we're talking about oil or manufactured products or software 
or many of the other things that we sell. So the Plaza Accord was all these countries, and they all had different currencies at the time. Now, it seems like a silly thing to say, but we're talking about France and West Germany as if, wait a minute, West Germany? Why didn't all of Germany did it? Well, there were two countries back then, and France had a different currency than West Germany did. Now they share a currency and more country. So they all got together with the United States. The United States at first, under the Reagan administration, Jim Baker was the Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, the Secretary of the Treasury. They said they didn't want to be part of it because it was better for us if we weren't part of it, but then France, West Germany, UK, and Japan said, well, we're going to do it anyway if you're not involved, and so we said we'd get involved. It's currency manipulation. What it, what it was is they all agreed to sell the dollar and buy currencies in, in the franc, in the mark, uh, in the pound, in the yen. So there was this big swap that happened, and it caused the dollar's price to plummet. So if you look at the surface of it, it looks like it was a complete success. But it led to a 20-year recession in Japan because the Japanese said, whoa, our yen can buy a lot more stuff in the United States now. And so they came and they bought Rockefeller Center, and they, 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 they bought a lot of stuff here. And they had a big bubble that burst, and they only came out of that re recession about a decade ago. We're talking about a long time. Currency manipulation is effective sometimes. And what's dangerous about it is the sometimes can even be the normal. That when you buy and sell currency to change the price of it, and it works and that's the normal, people get safe with it. And they're like, yeah, this is fine. But I would recommend that you look up long-term capital. One of my mentors at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Wharton, uh, was involved in the collapse of the Thai bot and the Russian ruble and most of Asian currencies dropping. It was called the Asian contagion in the late 1990s. Um, it, it came from thinking, oh, we, we understand how to do currency trades and manipulate this in a way that we can always make a little profit every time we do it until it doesn't work. Uh, you have something you want to add here? Well, you're talking about the long-term capital management. You can go ahead. Yeah. So this concept of we can always find ways to manipulate. If you have enough and enough people are selling one currency and buying another currency, you can change the price. George Soros did this famously. He's the man that broke the British pound. He's also lost a lot of money multiple times doing it at the wrong time. Uh, okay. Go ahead. Yeah, I would like to add something here, and I think it's important. Anytime that you... Intuitive moves on a macro scale almost never work. Uh, write that down someplace if you're if you're involved in such things. Not that you're going to be making moves on a macro scale. For example, <laughs> if you're ever president, yeah, yeah. And the issue is that the market is much bigger than any nation. It's bigger than the United States. It's by definition, the United States is a player in the international market. Therefore, the market must be hugely larger than the United States. The the analogy it, I used prior to the radio program starting was the the united states might be the big gorilla in the room but the room is bigger than the gorilla lots yeah and so the fact that the dollar by the way the, the back uh, before the plaza accord the dot the 
you, the British pound got down to dollar and five something, about a dollar and a nickel uh, to buy a British pound. It's a dollar nine cents today. Uh, so we're back in that same territory. Is can, could the play? The question that John had is: can, Could the Plaza Accord happen again? No, for two reasons. Uh, one, it was a steady state economy that we had across the world at that point. No big fluctuations were going on in the economy. No big major macroeconomic events were going on. And when everything is in balance and it's perfectly balanced, a tiny move. And I say a tiny move because government's purchasing of the dollar or sale of the dollar is a tiny move in, in light of the daily transactions in the dollar by in the private markets, um, can tip things and can make a difference. But we're in a situation right now in the world where there is anything but a steady state environment. We are in major socioeconomic flux around the world. Uh, there's a lot of big things happening and even larger things could happen at any moment and probably will. When you have this level level of socioeconomic ins- instability around the world, there's a very high probability that something unexpected is going to happen. Uh, good, bad, or indifferent, I don't know, but it, it's going to happen. China is in a world of hurt economically. It turned out that a lot of the Chinese growth in their economy that every it caused people to say they're going to pass the United States. They're going to be more wealthy in the United States. A good third of the growth in the Chinese economy over the last two decades and more has been one thing, property speculation, borrowed money, buying real estate. Does that sound familiar? We went through it through two seven. We, we went through it and got our chops knocked out in 2007 through 2009. The, the Russian, the, the Chinese avoided that by lending more money and buying more real estate. And now it's coming home to roost. They, wait, the price wait. of real estate is falling. The real estate is coming home to roost? Is, is that what, are we mixing metaphors again? I love this. Metaf- metaphorically. The houses are coming home to roost. There's some, there's some degree of truth in that. And it, it, they're in a point where pumping more money into the real estate market would make the follow-on collapse that's going to happen worse and the the chinese are aware that at the same time they've got about a third of their country locked down at any given moment and not doing business they're in a precarious situation europe is in a super precarious situation and there is evidence that the eu may be coming apart of the seams in, in various ways so currency manipulation at this point would be totally ineffective and it, you first off you couldn't get everybody to agree on it that agreed at that point because everybody's at each other's throats, but it ain't going to happen. The reason the dollar is high now is not because Reagan is spending money on defense and Volcker is raising interest rates. It's twofold. The reason the dollar is so high is because we have positive interest rates. We have an economy that is very stable. And if anything is growing too fast, uh, we have high interest rates in that economy. And nobody is invading us, nor are we locking down a third of the economy at a time because we're afraid of COVID. It boils down to the fact we are in the sweet spot. And money, come if you, if you were in Europe right now and you had the opportunity to invest when, European, when, when the United Kingdom has, is approaching double-digit inflation, anticipating double-digit inflation, when the rest of Europe is sliding quickly into recession, and we can talk about why they're sliding into recession. It isn't anything cyclical. It has to do with the invasion and China. Um, or you can come to the United States where the problem is our economy is running too well. 
if you have the opportunity, if you were an international investor and you said, I can put my money anywhere I want to put my money, where would you put it? And I think you would probably look at the United States and say, yeah, that's a secure place to be. And I can get some real interest on my money right there. So you got to buy dollars to do that. And the law of supply and demand is very real. When you buy dollars, the value of the dollar goes up. If, if there are far more people wanting to buy than sell, then the price of the dollar will go up and it's going up. And that's just the reality of where we are in the world. Uh, and we should be thankful from the bottom of our hearts that we're here, that we're not sitting in Europe where they don't know if they're going to have enough gas to heat their houses this winter. They don't know if they're going to have electricity this winter. Um, they don't know if Russia is going to pop some nukes on them at any given point. Or in China, where the government is clamping down more and more and more, and you never can tell when they'll decide to lock you in your house for six weeks. So just be very happy you're here. Uh, we have we have a situation not unlike the end of World War II, and not unlike, by the way, during the period when Ronald Reagan was president. Right. When, when we're the stable place in the world, we're the safe place in the world. We're the best place in the world to be. And yes, go on now. Yeah. So, so that was, do we think, let me kind of sum up. That was two people, both of us long winded answering. How did the Plaza Accord work? And can something like that work today? Well, it worked in bringing down the price of the dollar, but it destabilized the economic welfare of multiple countries involved in the agreement in ways that they didn't expect. It led to bubbles bursting, or first bubbles forming and then bursting. Um, currency manipulation since then has been something that the United States has been adamantly against at the state level, at the, at the country level. In fact, we've been chasing China for decades to get them to stop, and they finally did. There may be some currency manipulation going on there right now, but it's so small compared to what the market's doing that it's not a big deal. And that goes back to your steady state. But John had another question. And it's in some ways as complex and convoluted as the first one, but in some ways lots less. less. And his question is about derivatives. He said he read this week that derivatives dwarf the number of regularly traded equities and are off the books. What effects are they having on the current market sell-off? First off, let me tell you what a derivative is. A derivative is anything that derives its return from something else underneath it. Um, so if you've got an option to buy a stock, if it goes up, then that option price will start going up when the stock price goes up, if that makes sense. Uh, so you're saying, hey, I have this option to, to buy it at this low price. If the price of that stock is above that low price and you get the right to buy it at the low price, you could just turn around and sell it at the new high price and make a profit. Well, that means you could sell the derivative for a profit without even actually having to use it until it expires. Okay, so... Man, this can get really, really complicated really, really fast. So I'm going to keep it simple to that one basic concept of you bought the right to buy a stock at a given price. If the price drops on that stock, it's very unlikely that you're going to use your option contract because you would lose money doing it. You paid for the contract already. But if the stock price drops and you try to sell it, you're going to get you're not going to get any money for it. Nobody wants to buy that contract for less to buy a stock for less than what it is now or for more than it is now. That just doesn't make any sense. There's no profit there. 
So the size of the derivative market has a lot of ways of being measured. If you take all of the contracts out there, all the futures contracts on oil, which don't have to do with stocks, all the futures contracts out there on gold and on wheat, if you take all of the contracts, whether or not they are going to get exercised and give them a profitable price, you'll find that we have like a quadrillion dollars worth of derivatives out there, which is not reasonable. And you can find places that will measure it and say there's over a quadrillion dollars worth of derivatives out there. What a dangerous thing. If you only measure the ones that have the potential of actually getting used, you're down in the $14 trillion area. That's still big, but not compared to the rest of the market. The rest of the market where you're measuring in the hundreds of trillions of dollars. So the measurement of the derivatives market is somewhere between 14 trillion and a quadrillion dollars. The realistic number is closer to that 14 trillion. Uh, and I know we just probably lost a bunch of people talking about this. And a lot of this is off the books because this is the last part of his question is that they're regular, like they dwarf the number of regularly traded equities and are off the books. A lot of well, times they're traded what's called over the counter. It's still on somebody's books. It's just not going to be measured by an index. Um, and if you, if you want a really quick and easy example of why would you use a futures contract, say you're a farmer, you want to buy some seed, you don't want to go into debt in the traditional way, you sell your crop before you buy your seed in a futures contract. You say, I'm going to buy some wheat, so I will sell my wheat to whomever wants to buy an October contract for my wheat. And I'm going to use that money to go buy some seed. And then I can make a profit on the difference and I don't owe the bank. Now, if my crop fails, I have crop insurance, so hopefully that will pay whomever has my contract. Okay. Whose book would that be on? Well, it's going to be at an options trading desk somewhere. So, yes, you, you had something well, to add? It's not, they're not off the books. They're on somebody's books. Right. And options and derivatives tradings have, have gotten out of hand, particularly in the mortgage market in 2007 through nine, and that collapsed. But that's because, not because people didn't warn about it, right. but because it was a conscious effort during that period of time we had a very, very free market secretary of the treasury and, and very free market attitude saying, and, and Congress included, uh, our Senator from here at that time, by the way, would kind of led the fight that says, let's let the free market take care of itself. Unfortunately, free markets, free financial markets where you're not, where you're trading securities or things that look like securities need to have some regulation. They need to have some limits put on them or they go crazy. Free markets and the buying and selling of physical things, sure, it's no problem because you can't sell something you don't have. But that's the point in derivatives. You can sell something you don't have. Right. So these mor mortgage-backed securities that were split so many times so that only a very fractional percent of 1% of a house was held in any single mortgage package because it had been split up so many times and sold at so many different places that nobody knew who held the mortgage for the house. And, and there was a big plus to that in the beginning, in that you, a bank didn't wind up holding all the mortgages in this local area. And as a result, if the factory went down in the local area, the bank went out of business. By spreading the ownership of these houses around, 
or it the ownership of the debt, right? The ownership of the debt for the houses by spreading it across the United States, it was tremendously more stable than leaving it local. And so this and, great idea but, turned but bad. The, <laughs> but the problem is at that point there we lose, and this is a very very key point. Once you lose the line of responsibility between the final buyer of something and the originator of that something, there needs to be external regulation at the governmental level to keep it from going crazy and blowing up. A really easy example of that is if you go to Amazon.com and you buy something, you can give a bad rating to the seller. Even if that seller is selling something they got from a different manufacturer, they're not checking the quality. When you get into the derivatives market, you can't unless there's an external regulator following it. And that's tough because we're not big. We don't like the idea of over-regulation. But when you get something like an options contract that the typical person hasn't a clue how they work, you need to have somebody that understands them that's willing to protect them from over-eager salespeople. There you go. Did you want to add well, any more to that? There, there's the best way that I've been able to explain it in the past, and there's a lot of derivatives out there, and I'm glad the government regulates them. Let me say that derivatives make make the financial markets a lot safer. Usually. They also, usually. They, they, as a group, it, it, is, it produces a great deal of diversification and safety. Right. It also produces a great deal of liquidity and something that otherwise wouldn't be liquid, which means that it's cheaper to to get it to begin with, that's why mortgages can be gotten so easily is because of the derivatives. But there needs to be regulation. And let me give you an example. When I was growing up, if I could do this, when I was growing up, my grandmother would send me across the railroad tracks to a guy named T-Bone who had a little butcher shop in a little grocery store within short walking distance of our house. T-Bone bought his meat from local farmers, cut it up himself, and sold it right there in this little grocery store which is mainly a meat store. Um, and that was cool. And there was a direct connection. If for some reason or another, somebody didn't take care of their cow and they gave him some bad meat or something like that, he would stop buying from them and everybody in town would know that they had given bad meat and it would put them out of business. So they had, they had a very clear impetus, a very clear reason to give good meat to T-Bone in his grocery store. Today, when you go to the grocery store, you have no idea where that cow came from. You are a pig or whatever it is you buy pieces of in the, in, from the meat market. We're going to call them derivatives of a cow. (laughs) And actually the derivatives go even further when you go buying bologna and things like that. So this is the point of bologna. I'll tell you that. That's why the FDA has to step in and track this and inspect it and make sure that it's quality stuff before it goes through the free market. Unless it's the department of agriculture gets involved there too. Right. Well, Food and Drug Administration, <laughs> Department of Agriculture. So external regulation is critical at that point. And actually, our derivatives situation is pretty safe right now. It may be a little too safe in some ways because we did go through the 2007 through 2009 collapse. And so the government cracked down on a lot of areas. So I don't think it's a threat at this point in the United States. But I will come back to the very simplest answer possible on this, which isn't very simple. It's still the simplest answer. There are about 1,850 companies listed on the New York Stock Exchange, okay? So uh, we had it go up to like 2,400 at some point. So somewhere around, we'll, we'll even emphasize, we'll, we'll, we'll overestimate and say there's 2,700 stocks listed or companies listed 
on the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. Okay. How many mutual funds are there? I know you're going to go to that. Well, mutual funds, there may be around 10,000 mutual funds out there right now. And that's not even counting share classes of mutual funds. Mutual funds are not always, you have to be careful here. Due diligence is required. You need to read prospectuses and make sure you're doing the right thing. But they're an, an amazing way of removing some non-systemic risk from a portfolio to be diversified. Well, what do you mean? You there's there's tens of thousands of mutual funds when we've only got like twenty seven hundred stocks. How does that even work? Well, think about how many four hundred one k plans you have. If you have the method to pool investments to get better diversification, it doesn't mean that the mutual funds are more valuable than the stocks that they hold. There's just more of them, and if you think about the number of shareholders of a stock, you're now talking about millions upon millions of people own shares of corporations. So there's more shares than there are corporations. Those are derivatives. The market, go ahead. 7,481 mutual funds, not counting share classes. Um, Okay. So as of Morningstar, is that where you grabbed that? At the end of 2021, there were 7,400. There used to be a lot more. Yeah. It used to be in the tens of thousands. Uh, I remember probably 10 years ago, there were like 15,000 mutual funds out there. Yeah. So 2019, there were 7,900. We have fewer mutual funds today than we did then. Yep. So this is, this is normal for a derivative to outnumber the thing that it's holding because the thing that it's holding is a valuable item. And if you want to split the ownership of that valuable item so that a normal person can own it, and not take too much risk by only owning one thing, you need derivatives to kind of clear that up. In the mortgage market, the derivatives to do exactly the same thing, to repackage it and have it spread away from one bank's risk spread across the country was great until we lost track of who owned what. And then we had um, robo signing going on because nobody knew who had the authority to sign a foreclosure document because no single entity owned the mortgage. So we have to track that stuff. There are lots of dangers there, but the underlying safety that comes from spreading out the risk is really important. We have to protect that while we're getting rid of the excess risk of not knowing who owns what. And man, was that a long-winded, simple answer. <laughs> if you'd like to talk to us off the air, you can call us uh, at local number at... 254-947-1111. Or toll-free 1-800-914-7526. Uh, that's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can send us through contact form or email. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can listen to our radio program going way back. You can find our uh, podcast anywhere podcasts are provided. Uh, email addresses are jeff at tpwc.com and jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.